This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace build it beautiful. Hello, uh, good evening. Um, welcome everyone to the first Irish Times Book Club live event held in association with the Irish Writer Centre here in Dublin's Parnell Square. Uh, my name is Martin Doyle. I'm the assistant literary editor of the Irish Times. Um, also on the panel tonight is Anna Carey, who's a reviewer and author of the Rebecca series of young adult fiction, which she was telling me has just been made the junior cert curriculum. Congratulations. Well, the first year curriculum. The free, first year curriculum. Free junior cert. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, this month, over the last month, uh, the Irish Times Book Club has been reading The Thrill of It All by Joseph O'Connor. Um, it's Joe's eighth novel. Uh, he's also written two short story collections, several plays, and uh, best-selling collections of journalism. And last year, uh, he has appointed Frank McCourt Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Limerick. Um, I've interviewed Joe, I think, at last count six times over the last 20 <coughs> odd years and, and man and boy that is barely keeping up um, with his output um, Joe The Thrill of It All is a very different sort of novel to your previous three novels Ghost Light Redemption Falls and Star of the Sea it made me wonder was it a longer time than usual in gestation or did it did the inspiration come more recently after those three works I suppose it's the latter, really. Like, with Star of the Sea, Redemption Falls and Ghostlight, which I kind of think of as a loose trilogy um, that could be read in any order and that those three novels might uh, comment on each other and reveal things about each other and argue with each other. Uh, so, so I thought of them as a, a kind of 10-year project. And I'm fond of those books. I'm proud of them, uh, but, but you, you know, it was a serious amount of work and they're very serious books. I hope they're readable and, you know, Star of the Sea obviously became a bestseller. But, but um, it, it was a huge commitment in terms of time and, and seriousness of intent and ambition and all of that. And I, I came out of it still in love with writing, but I suppose hankering a little bit for the sort of fizziness and lightness of my early books, not all of which I like very much, you know. I mean, I'm not particularly fond of my debut novel, Cowboys and Indians. I took it out again recently and looked at it because somebody was interested in making a film of it. And, and I know that it's actually not possible to die of shame uh, because, <laughs> I, um, because I, I, I survived that experience. So I thought, w w but wouldn't it be nice to get back to that sort of world of writing about youth and folly and innocence and making music and falling in love? Um, hopefully being a slightly better writer than I was 25 years ago. So, so I, I wrote it pretty much as a, as a result of those three books. Okay. Did you describe it, I think, in, in one of the articles in the series as an entertainment? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, Graham Greene used to, great, a great writer whose, whose books I, I love, used to distinguish between his, his kind of serious novels and his entertainments. And I suppose... That's what I was hoping for. I was hoping that the book would be funny. I think people who were young in the 1980s would respond to the book in a particular way. And I've had many letters from readers who were interested in the music of that time or who were teenagers or in their 20s at that time. 
And um, yeah, I hoped it would be a slightly sort of frivolous book. I mean, I love when Yeats says in that great poem, you know, but I being young and foolish um, with her would not agree. Uh, the folly of youth is such a beautiful thing. And, the, uh, and how the innocence of youth, I suppose, in a way, is, uh, is a kind of experience. I mean, in some ways, you're more mature. In some ways, you're more sensible, I think, when you're 21 uh, than you are when you get old and respectable. Um, so it was an attempt to kind of tap into that. And other themes that I've been interested in lately, like it's a book about friendship rather than love. And Ghostlight, Redemption Falls and Star of the Sea all have a very passionate love story at the heart of them. Um, and I think there aren't as many novels about friendship as there should be. And at the heart of the thrill of it all is a friendship that begins when this boy and girl are 17 and goes on right into middle age. Uh, and it was a challenge and a fun thing to write about a friendship between a man and a woman that wasn't a romantic or a sexual friendship. And then obviously a huge presence in the book is music and just the particular charm and the particular role that music has in most of our lives. You know, nearly all of us have a kind of soundtrack of how we remember where we were and who we were with and friends we had and friends we lost and all of that. Interestingly, it's not always the greatest music that was around mm -hmm. at, the, at the time. I mean, when you talk to people who did fall in love in 1963, um, in my experience, they're far more likely to tell you Cliff Richard was playing um, <laughs> than the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. um, but, but still, I suppose just to, to honour that particular very special place that music has in our hearts. Mm -hmm. so, so those were the, the kind of reasons. Like music has featured regularly in your work right from the beginning, from yeah. the would-be punk rocker Eddie Virago and Cowboys and Indians, to the late Johnny Little and Desperados, to the balladeer Pass Mulvey even in Star of the Sea. Mm. Interestingly, he shares a surname with Fran yeah. uh, in this book. I want to hand it over to Anna, who's got more of a background <laughs> in music than myself. Um, Anna, do you want to take um, up the well, theme one of thing music? I, I think you did uh, really brilliantly in the book is that anybody who's been in a band knows and I was in bands for my teens. I busked on, on Grafton Street in uh -huh. 1991 when I was 16 and a very dispiriting experience it can be too. But um, the, the experience of being in a band sort of semi-seriously, which I was in my 20s, uh, it's a very weird, intense dynamic a lot uh -huh. of the time. And I think you, you captured that uh, incredibly well. I mean, what is it about that you'd be saying about friendship, but the sort of, the dynamic of people who are in a band or in anything where they're working on a project together, yeah. um, sort of stuck together family-wise, um, what, what is it about that that appealed to you as a writer? Um, I, I suppose it is that in the thrill of it all, there, the four people in this group are a kind of family. Mm. Um, and like all families, they're bound together by you know, a nexus of emotions, only one of which is love, you know, yes. like there's, there's envy and, the, and, the, and there's competitiveness and, and all of those other things. But that in some sense, the different roots by which they come to being in a band create something that is better than all of them um, and heal wounds that all of them have. I mean, Robbie, who's the least, he's the narrator of the book, uh, and it's told mainly in the first person, the f my first novel to be to offer itself in the first person ever. Um, and there are particular challenges to do with that. But he's the least talented musician, 
but he's the biggest sort of drive to be a star. You know, he's like every teenager who was ever, you know, posing in the mirror with the tennis racket at home. And he just dreams of being on top of the pops. He meets this very flamboyant theatrical boy, Fran Mulvey, who, who is kind of a musical genius, but who has a dread of fame. And he's right to have it. And the subsequent events in Fran's life prove that he was right to have it. His, his, his analysis of his own situation is far more on the money when he's 17 than it, than it is when he's older. Uh, and then there are these two twins, um, Sarah and Sean, and she's a brilliant musician and he's just along because he's got nothing else to do. But they just get something out of playing music together. Sean, who's kind of my favourite character in the book in some ways, he's the drummer and he's just the most reliable, solid guy. Sean Sherlock, like you would just put your life into the hands of this man. Um, and he's, he says that music is a way of having a conversation without having to talk. You know, the moments in every relationship when I'm actually angry with you, I don't actually have the words to say what I want to say to you without causing more hurt and making it worse. If you could play music at those moments, it's a way of just keeping the underground water flowing between you. You know, I find now, like I play music at home with my kids. If I have a row with my 15-year-old boy and if we play music that night, it's fine. It's all fine. You know, and it's a way of just saying, I'm here for you, you're here for me. There's this thing that we do together and you have to do things at a particular moment and I have to do them then. I, I, I just think it's such an important factor in, in lives and relationships um, and particularly in the lives of musicians who I've been privileged enough to know and to work with a bit over the last few years. And I mean, what, what's your own experience in, in making music? Is there, is there any... Painful. Is, well, that's what I was, I was wondering, you know, because obviously you're, you, you haven't done it professionally. Um, but, <laughs> no, I haven't, no. But you did, I mean, my, my sister is also in a band, a band released their latest album on, on Friday, and uh, she was saying that she had never, she was just convinced when she read it, that you must have spent a huge chunk of your youth in bands because you so perfectly captured that feeling of playing crappy gigs to like two people in a pub in Kilkenny. No, that's and just that's just all the readings I did yeah. at the start of my career. Yeah. <laughs> but there is there is a kind of a, a similarity between you know those sort of performances. No, I, I I haven't been. I've never been in a band. I mean, I. I Somebody gave me a guitar when I was 14 or 15 and, I, and a, a Bert Whedon chord book. I'd play the day. Uh, you know, so, yeah. so I, I know, you know, seven guitar chords. Yes. I, like, I'm a really untalented guitarist. I, I, I haven't ever really been in a band. I spent one year as a postgraduate student in Oxford University after I left GCD. And me and some of my friends used to sit around at night and play music. And that's the level at which I would put it. And we played like two or three times that kind of student part. We were on before the disco, you know, oh, when we yes. were a covers <laughs> band. And we didn't write music and we weren't serious about it. So I don't think it's to do with that. But as I say, just in recent years, I've found myself in situations where I've been close to musicians. Mm. I, I have a live theatre show that I do with my friend Philip King, who's a wonderful musician and broadcaster. And because Philip has the, the uh, phone book that he has, um, the special guest on any given night might be 
Camille O'Sullivan or Paul Brady or someone from the gloaming, you know, so I have found myself on stage at the Abbey Theatre playing the guitar with Paul Brady, wondering <laughs> how in the name of Jesus did this happen to me? Like I envy myself, my life is so jammy. Um, so, and, and I suppose, and musicians kind of intrigue me. I mean, I think it is a really fascinating art and you would know this yourself because music is an art that's made with the body. You know, what I do is I sit at home in a room and if I have an off day, I don't have to write. But a musician, like an actor, has to get up there and do it. And what singers do is so particularly amazing because that, that sound comes out of your soul. I mean, if you listen to Van Morrison, who we were all celebrating over the weekend, or any great singer, my sister Sinead, or Edith Piaf, or anybody, I, I mean, that, that's an art that comes from the heart and the soul, but from the body as well. And there's just nothing like that. It's, it's just such a wonderful thing. There's a great bit in the book um, where you just... And I, I, I very rarely read a description uh, so so apt as this. It's talking about, you know, when they're sort of starting to... Songs are starting to come together. And it says, To be young and in a band that is stumbling towards its own sound, messily, slowly, with all the infuriation of hope, is to realise what it feels like to be alive. When the gig went well, the fierce besotted excitement would buzz through your blood till the dawn. Uplifting any audience, even a tiny crowd in a bar, is an addiction you'll, you'll never get over. This is why I, I want to know, maybe it's the addiction, maybe you're addicted to, to raising the spirits at, at those events. Because I, I don't think I've ever heard, read the, the description of a gig going well, or even music going well. Oh, I, I think anybody who's involved in any kind of public engagement mm would know that. I mean, I remember talking to the great writer Pat McCabe once after a, a reading that he had done. I think we were in Holland. Yeah, we were at a festival in Holland. Pat loves music and he's a bit of a performer himself, you know, <laughs> and his readings are fantastic. He was in a band. He's been in many bands. The yeah. Paddy Hanrahan. Yeah, yeah. But, he, but he, he, was, he was telling me that, like, after a, a reading, he just can't sleep. I mean, you just, you know, you're on a high and you're just buzzing. And if you read something that's funny, or if you read something that's moving, you know, the particular quality of silence in the room, um, you just feel that you've created something that you couldn't do by yourself. And, it, you know, it is a very intoxicating thing. And for somebody like myself, who, as I say, you know, I'm a writer, like a lot of the people here tonight, I, I sit in a room by myself, you know, a lot of the time. And it's a strange way for a grown-up to spend their time. To come out into a public forum and do that, to, like to have written a play that goes well to hear, like a theatre that's full of people laughing at something you wrote. You know, it's it's a fantastic experience. I and won't lie. I suppose, as you say, when you're writing, you know, the your the the intended audience consumes or you know absorbs what you've done at a remove. Whereas when you're doing anything live, it is it's a very immediate thing because you can see the reaction instantly. Yeah. Um, I mean, does in in the book you you sort of do show, of course, the the downside as well. It's not a romantic view of being in a band, you know, even no. when success comes. Um, uh, what was interesting to you about exploring that sort of, you know, aspect? Because it's, I, yeah. even when they do get financials, you know, a bit of financial success, it's not like, and then they're going to be swimming around in, you know, guitar-shaped swimming pools full of dollars for forever. Um, I, I think success is a very, very difficult thing to handle and and in all honesty 
um, quite a stressful thing. I mean, I know a number of extremely successful artists and sometimes, uh, you know, I think what money buys you, after you've bought your house and your car and, and, and the various things you might want, what money buys you is time. And that's a very dangerous thing. Because I think a lot of creative people, what drove them into it in the first place, at heart is a kind of insecurity. You know, you're not quite sure about something. You know, a teenager um, who comes to music or writing, it's, it's generally because there's something you don't understand. There's something you're trying to fix. It might be something that happened to you, some flaw or some brokenness that was part of your own life. And somehow, thanks be to God, we have this world of the arts and creativity that can be an oasis for a kid like that. You go into that world where you control things, you play with things, and it might become a safer place. And then you have success, and then you have time to sit there and go back to being that frightened kid. And you don't have the goals, you don't have the roadmap or the ambition anymore. I, I think it's really tough, you know, quite, quite a stressful thing for people to be able to handle. And I think most of the people in the band in the book simply can't yeah. handle it. I mean, you were asking me earlier if I'd been in a band and I meant to say, you know, anytime I have a stress dream, you know, if I'm busy at work or, you know, things are getting on top of me, my stress dreams are always that I'm in a band. You know? <laughs> I, I have been in some great bands over the years. You know, I've been with the Beatles, you know, I've been in the Stones, I've been in the Boomtown Rats. I had a stress dream last month because I, I was just too busy. And I was in the Beatles for, I think, the fifth or sixth time in my life. There's, a, there's always five of us. It's not me replacing one of them. Well, it's that's actually, good. At least you yeah, got, you know. We're about to go on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> And John Lennon is standing beside me and he's freaking out. He says, I can't, I can't you know, I can't fucking remember the chords or except, <laughs> he, except he said it in a Liverpool accent. And I was teaching John Lennon that, you know, the chords of She Loves You or Gene, <laughs> you know. So just, that's just my interior life you know, as a band member. So if it's stressful like that for me, imagine what it's like for Bono, you know. It must be just awful. We're just going to pause for a moment to tell you about our new sponsors, Squarespace. If you're looking to build a site that's professionally designed, regardless of your skill level and with no coding required, then Squarespace has intuitive and easy-to-use tools. Squarespace, which has its European operations and customer service office here in Dublin, has trusted technology that will power your site, giving it security and stability. To start your free trial site today and with no credit card required, go to squarespace.com using the code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace Build It Beautiful. Joe, could I ask um, if Star of the Sea was inspired by the huge energy and ambition of Dickens and other great Victorian novelists and Ghostlight was not only peopled with Singh and Yeats and Lady Gregory but resonated with the spirits of Joyce and O'Casey, maybe even Shaw. Um, what were the literary lights that perhaps inspired you or fed into this novel? Um, the, the moment that I realised I wanted to uh, write the novel was... Um, the moment uh, around Christmas time five years ago, um, we were living in New York. I was teaching in Baruch College there, so I was living there with my wife and our two sons. And um, I was writing a weekly column for another mm -hmm. Irish newspaper um, at the time, which I won't mention. <laughs> uh, and I love Patty Smith. Mm -hmm. Patty Smith has been important to me since I was a young teenager, and you know she is just my idol. 
And on a Wednesday night in New York, we went to see her play. And she was aged, I think, 66 then. And she performed her album Horses Mm -hmm. from start to finish. And I was a bit nervous going to see it because I thought, do you actually want to see somebody of 66 doing this? And I was just blown away by, by the gig. I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. So my column in the inferior newspaper that week was a review of the Patti Smith gig. So that was that. So I go into college on the Monday morning and there's an email from the editor of this newspaper back in Dublin <laughs> saying, we have, we have an email here from somebody who signs it, Patti Smith. And she says that because of Twitter and, you know, all of that, she saw your review last night and she's asked me to pass this on to you. So I am convinced that this is my longtime friend, John McDermott, <laughs> taking the piss out of me. <coughs> the cruelest but, but, of yeah, tricks. But I, but I cautiously, uh, you know, so she says, th- thank you very much for that lovely, very gracious review. And I love going to Dublin. And next time I'm in Dublin, perhaps we'll have a cup of tea together. So I still convinced <laughs> John, email back and, and say, uh, okay, well, I'm actually in New York at mm. the moment and I'm a, I'm not stalking you, but I do know <laughs> that the college is 12 blocks from your house. <laughs> so uh, it's surreal, 20 to 10 on, on like a Monday morning. So she says, OK, come round to the house this afternoon. So I go to the house, I knock on the door, and I'm like, until the moment the door opens, I'm still not sure. <laughs> but the door opened, and there stood Patty Smith, and she didn't say anything to me. She stepped into the porch of her house, and she put her arms around me, and I just realised I have to write a book about the gloriousness of pop music because something as strange and beautiful as this could actually happen. So we go into the house and I'd brought her flowers. At her request, I'd brought her a copy of a book of mine. And we went up the stairs, past the room with all her guitars, into her kitchen. And we had a chat for a while and um, she said... Uh, she said, You're, you have a very nice... She said, I like uh, European accents. And you have a very nice accent. So um, why don't we go downstairs and you can read to me for a while from your book. It was Redemption Falls. <laughs> so we went downstairs to her studio and I sat there. As the dusk came down over the street in New York the day before Christmas Eve, I read to Patti Smith from Redemption Falls. Occasionally she picked up her battered 12-string guitar that looked as though it had seen a few fights and she strummed a few chords. We drank half a glass of port each and at six o'clock I went home through the snow thinking, did that actually happen? (laughs) (laughs) And, And there's a scene based on that in the trailer Robbie gets to meet. Mm -hmm. And I I think I wrote the entire novel just as a way (laughs) of writing about this wonderful thing. Are you uh, sure it wasn't another stress dream? Um, (laughs) If it it was, um, it would be a dream I would be happy to have (laughs) ever again. Um, People say that you shouldn't meet your heroes and you should be very uh, circumspect about them, but she was just absolutely as wonderful Mm -hmm. as you could possibly imagine and more, because of course, to me, the Patti Smith that I loved is the Patti Smith who made horses mm. when she was a young woman. But to find yourself talking with Patti Smith, who's, who's now, you know, she's, she turned 70 this year, um, with all of the wildness and all of the bohemian leather jacket, I'm going to do exactly what I want. But at the same time, the clarity and the wisdom 
of an older woman. It was a bit like meeting Virginia Woolf at the same time as meeting Pat, Patty Smith. It was just a wonderful experience. So I, I think that's probably the moment that sparked off mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. I wonder, Joe, why did you set the book in England rather than Dublin to begin with anyway? You said that Luton, like when we spoke before we started the book club, you said that the poly in Luton was really uh, <laughs> UCD in disguise. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. The, well, the first thing is, you know, I grew up in Dublin the late 1970s and 80s, and there was a lot of music, and it was a wonderful thing, and I've written about that a bit this week in the Irish Times or on, on the website uh, in a piece about the Boomtown Rats and the other bands who were around at the while, at the time. Um, but there are a lot of survivors from that era who were the kind of music heads and they want you to get it right, you know, and they want you to, you know, if you write that you went to a particular gig in Moran's Hotel yeah. by the Radiators from Space <laughs> on the 2nd of January 1981, you better get it absolutely right. So I, I just think thought you'll I could, find yeah, that they did yeah, not exactly. support that. I, I just thought I can't actually face setting it in Dublin <laughs> because there'll be a queue of people who used to be in bands uh, who hmm. will kill me for getting things wrong. And then I suppose more seriously, I was thinking about uh, just in recent years in the context of things like the Queen's visit here and President Higgins' visit to the UK and the, the official closening of the two countries, which, you know, it's a wonderfully welcome thing. But everybody who's lived in the UK, as, as you have, mm -hmm. you were a journalist there, every, everybody knows that down at the grassroots level, the guilty secret of the English and the Irish is that they're very close. They're actually very, very fond of each other. Um, you worked at the Irish Post um, for some years, a paper that I used to read when I first went to London in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And this entire world of towns in England that were not um, Liverpool or Cricklewood mm -hmm. or North London but were um, Slough and Luton, towns the length and breadth of Britain where there's an Irish club or an Irish society or they have a St. Patrick's Day parade or a branch of Kiltus or some way of acknowledging Irishness while still assimilating in Britain. And I couldn't think of a novel about people like that. I mean, there are, there are novels and short stories and very powerful songs about Irish people in Britain harking back and, and, and regretting ever having left. But someone like Jimmy Goulding in this book, who lives in Luton, and, and he, he kind of feels that being the nice Irish family on, the, on this working class housing estate in Luton is a status that he's achieved. You know, and it's really important to him mm -hmm. that the lovely English neighbours to think yeah. that the Goulding family are very nice and very respectable. Um, so so I, I just, because I couldn't think of another novel set in that, world, I, I thought it would be quite a, quite a rich one mm -hmm. to, to write about. I probably, if I have a regret, I probably wish I had done a little bit more uh, of, of that with the book. Um, I'm very fond of Jimmy as a character and he, I hope he's funny and all of that. But I, but I think the, the lives of those hundreds of thousands of Irish people who went to England and were not in a John McGahern short story, brilliant as those stories were, um, still has yet to be written about mm -hmm. in fiction, I think. There's always next time. Yeah. <laughs> but there is, the, I mean, just when you mentioned Jimmy, one of the, the funniest parts of the book is when um, Robbie comes home drunk yeah. and has uh, 
and has sort of his father getting angrier and angrier and him finding it funnier and funnier, which I think quite a lot of us have been in similar situations in our youth. Um, but one thing that I think the book really gets uh, gets very well is that very Irish and British thing. I mean, just you're saying about the closeness between Ireland and Britain, I think all you have to do is when you first go to America and realise, oh, well, we're really like the English because, you know, you see that there's such a shared sensibility that is not necessarily shared by our English-speaking neighbours mm. across the Atlantic. Um, and in the book, there is that that really Irish and British thing of slagging people off and in the book, you realise that the dynamics of the band are changing when they're being polite to each other's faces and mean behind their backs. I mean, is there is, there's a certain sort of of humour in this part of the world oh, that yeah. um, that is kind of affectionate and a bit aggressive, but yeah, but well, he's affectionate underneath it all. I mean, is that something that that interests you? Oh yeah, it explore? has. And I mean, that 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 kind of humour has kind of popped its head up in my books ever since. Um, uh, cowboys and Indians but it's, it's funny you mention it because I had a conversation recently with an American editor who turned the book down she said she liked it a lot and there were things she loved about it but she said I, I just found the sense of humour so aggressive sometimes so I said could you give me an example and she said there's a bit late in the book the second part of the book is set now it's set, mm. set on one day in the summer of 2012 actually not, so not quite now but three members of the band decide to reform and Trez, Sarah Sherlock, is the, the one of them who tries to bring this about. So she comes to see Robbie and she puts the case to him uh, that we should reform for one night and we'll play a gig in Vicker Street. And he says, well, you know, I haven't played in so long, I'd be shit playing live. And she says, well, I don't seem to remember that ever stopping you. Uh, and the nice American editor said, what friends could possibly say that to each other? And, and I said, like, in Ireland, that would be a declaration of love. You know? <laughs> so it's so strange. Yeah, it's strange. That it's one of the little codes we have for talking to each other, isn't it? Yeah, it's I do remember on my, on my first time in America, my J1, our American friends were just absolutely horrified by the way me and my friends spoke to each other and I don't think we were in any way extreme but it was just the idea that you wouldn't be sort of sincerely praising everybody all, all the time, the time yeah. that you, you know was kind of alien yeah to them. no it is it's odd yeah is humor I was just thinking um it comes naturally to you obviously but I wonder how hard you have to work at it does humor require rewriting oh, or God, is yeah. it a natural thing all the way through well I mean the that scene I might read a bit of this scene later the scene with yeah. Robbie comes home drunk and his his lovely father Jimmy kind of tears strips off him I remember starting to write that I got the idea for it on Christmas day because Christmas again that particular year and I remember going down to the office and writing it and really loving it that day and thinking, God, there's something in this scene. And just having to come back to it again and again and again until I was just absolutely sick of it um, by the end. Anne Enright, the great Anne Enright, says that's how you know when a, a scene, when a novel is finished, when you can't bear to think about <laughs> it anymore. Um, the same with the short story, you know, that, that you, you need to actually go through the process of turning it upside down and being really tough on it and hard on it and liking it. And, you know, it's, it's like an entire marriage mm -hmm. telegraphed into um, the amount of time that you might have to write something. So, yeah, humour is hard and everything is hard. I mean, writing is really difficult, as everybody in this room knows, as you two know, anybody who does any kind of writing knows that to express yourself in a medium as brittle as language is very hard. I mean... You know, the great 
lines from Eliot's Proofrock, the great refrain, that is not what I meant at all. And we feel that every day, you know, with our spouses and our children and our colleagues, everybody, to say exactly what you meant is a really difficult thing. And most of a writer's life is spent trying to get as close to that as you can. And when you start off, 50% is enough. And after you've written a couple of novels, you, you want to, you know, yeah. try and up Raise the percentage. But I find writing very hard. And like, unlike, I guess, a, lo a lot of other things in life, I, I find it gets harder all the time because your standards get higher all mm -hmm. the time. You want every book to to be the book that it can be, you know, whatever that is. So, so yeah, if you take it seriously, it's, it's, it's difficult, yeah. Maybe following on from that, one of the most interesting things we did perhaps was to publish... Um, uh, not an extract from the book, but something that you actually dropped from the final version yeah. of the book, which was like a Wikipedia-style entry about the band. So I guess my question is, how much did the book change from your initial idea and the various um, drafts that it went through? And did it veer off a lot from your the original course that you thought it would yeah, take? Yeah, the, the first draft of The Thrill of It All is extremely different. From, from the finished version, probably more than was the case with any of my other uh, novels. The Wikipedia thing, I just had this idea that the book would start off with the Wikipedia entry for this fictitious band. And it was fun to write that and have all of the little kind of linguistic ticks that those have. And I worked for about a week on that. And then my editor, Jeff Mulligan, said to me, the only problem with putting that at the start is that Wikipedia entries are the entire story of something. Yeah. So you've told the entire story of the novel in the preface. Yeah. So why would anybody waste their time, you know, buying the book and reading the rest of it? Um, it the book, it was probably more, uh, not more serious, but more literary in how it was constructed. And it had a much darker ending. Uh, than it does at the moment. At the moment, it ends hopefully. At the moment. Well, <laughs> it's a new version. Well, no, no, it is. No, no, it's, it, it is a weird thing that any any time I give a reading, say from any novel, I end up, I end up changing it. Like that's the bit I might oh. read later. So like it's never mm -hmm. it's never mm -hmm. quite finished for me. You know, you still. I mean, I drive my publishers mad because, as people know here, you know, you're not supposed to correct proofs too much you know you correct the proofs and then you send them off and they're signed off on and they go to the printer but with star of the sea for example i think i said this in the piece with jeff my editor he and i were still working on the proofs the night before it went to the printer Whoa. so not I, just typos but rewrites rewrites yeah. and and you know you're really not meant to do that so yeah it's hard it's hard for me to say that something is actually finished mm -hmm. like with ghostlight the no novel of mine that i'm fond of myself that character is still with me and, and I'm now two books later, but the, that presence of Molly Allgood in that book is, is somebody who I'm not sure she's ever going to go. You know, I, I see things in the street or I read things in the newspaper and I find myself wondering what would Molly think of that? Like if Molly Allgood mm. knew that Enda Kenny sent that guy out to the Garda <laughs> Commissioner's house. What would she say about that? You know, she's become one of my ways of looking at the world. Well, I do remember you saying that you were upset like when, we when I interviewed you for Ghostlight. I remember you saying that in an early draft she was all over it and you became sort of obsessed by her and you had to kind of 
you were too much in love with her, you had to kind of. Um, I think I actually did. Yeah, I think when it, there are two Mollies in the book, she she appears as a young, a very young woman, like a teenager, which she was when she met Singh, and then as an elderly woman. And I I, I think she's the first character I, I ever wrote where I, I sort of had a bit of a crush on her, actually. You know, I'd find myself going down to work in the morning, really looking forward to spending the day with Molly. You know, <laughs> where are we going to go today? And then as an older woman, I, I just had such an affection for her absolute refusal to live authentically. I mean, we're all told all the time now that we have to live in the real mm. world and wake up and live the authentic life. And of course, if any of us ever did that, um, life would be too awful to face. I mean, we would never get out of bed in the morning. And, and one of the things that, that I loved about Molly is that she doesn't know that she's a bag lady, you know, who's just down on her luck, who nobody cares about anymore. And all her great performances as an actress are over and she's been forgotten. She just didn't get the memo. You know, to, in her mind, she's still the gracious, mm -hmm. glorious, you know, slightly vain yeah, uh, working for the BBC. Yeah, and, and, and there are nice moments, I hope, in the book where the men she meets in the course of the day allow her to have that fantasy. They don't say to her, you're not that. You know, they allow her, to, they have some gentleness and some mercy mm -hmm. um, about the denials that she has. And the older I get myself, the more I find I'm drawn to people who are gentle with me about my denials. Um, so. Well, we all need. Yeah. But Thanks. Sorry, oh well, I, I, um, I mean, one thing that's that's evident in, in a lot of, in a lot of your books is what what feels like an affection for your characters. And somebody said of J.D. Salinger that he he loved his characters more than God loved them. I and mean, do you feel that sort of slight protectiveness towards? You know, because even yeah. like obviously there is a lot of darkness in some of your books, but there's there is a sort of you know it's not Cormac McCarthy like there is a humanity no. there that seems to you know there seems to be an affection from you. I, from I, I, I would find it hard to write a novel, which is you know two years worth of work or more, about somebody who who I really hated. You, you know, I I think even when you're writing about um, a villainous character like Pius Mulvey in Star of the Sea starts off as, you know, a wide boy um, and, and he becomes monstrous, you know, in the, in the course of the book. But in order to write a villain who is credible, you have to find something in them to, almost, well, to love, I would say. So, so I think about them that way. I try to make them as flawed and as credible as, as real people are. But of course, you know your characters better than you know real people because mm. you know all their secrets. You could be married to somebody for 20 years mm. and not know them as well as um, Colin Tobin would know the version of Henry James mm. who's in The Master. You know, again, to come back to Graham Greene, you know, he said you should know everything about the, the character, absolutely everything, that you reveal maybe 3% of it. But in order for the character to live on the page, you must know the whole lot, and I kind of think that's true. So, you know, it was important for Robbie to be um, likeable and funny and wise and all of those things, but to be evasive too about his own story. I mean, I, technically I thought of the thrill of it all as a book being narrated by a man who doesn't want to tell you his story. It's too painful for him to tell. And so he indulges in comedy that gets a bit larger than life, 
sometimes. So the challenge was for the book not to become too cartoonish because the actual facts of what has happened to Robbie in his life are dark, but his, his way of dealing with them is to try and make them seem funny. Which is very Irish. Thing, yeah, and it's a challenge, as I was saying earlier, to, to do that in the first person is a challenge because you have to trust that the reader will spot what's going on and that is, he erects a kind of smokescreen of it was all funny so that, so that you won't say, geez, that looks yeah. like it was terrible. Um, so there was probably a lot more of that side of it in the early mm-hmm. drafts and, and working with Jeff and with other people at Random House, it became more, why, why can't it, you know, we just make it be a story, just let it be a story that doesn't comment on itself mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. time. One last question from me. Uh, do you see yourself as a risk taker, a writer who likes to experiment? Is that a conscious thing? Well, I see myself as somebody who decided when I was you know, 14 or 15 that I would like to do this with my life. Um, and I kind of made a deal with writing you know, while I was still in my teens that, that, that I would give it everything I've got you know, in order for it to work. Um, I, I, I thought that I had you know, a modest talent but that I was willing to work very hard and do whatever I could with it. So if that's the kind of writer you are, the only way that you can keep it interesting for yourself at all is to keep doing new things. I mean, I would have had um, amiable pressure or encouragement, say, put on me when Star of the Sea became a big success, just to keep doing that. And But that wouldn't have been enough for me. I just would have got sick and tired of it so quickly and I would have hated going to work in the morning. And I, I never do. I mean, I love writing. I feel the same way about it that I did when I was a kid. You know, most, most of the time, I, I just feel so privileged to have been able to spend my life doing this and for this to have been my profession. I mean, this is what I've done for, you know, for 25 or 30 years now. So I feel very lucky to have been able to, but I do need, I need it to keep being a challenge in order to be able to do it at all. Yeah. And and can you say I know not everybody likes talking about this, but can you say what you're working on now? Or well, I'm not working on anything now, yeah. so I can I can say yeah. Have a um, yeah. No, it's uh, I just I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm going to be in the Rolling Stones tonight in my, in my dreams. <laughs> No, I, I started to teach um, at the University of Limerick a year ago and it's a dream job and I just feel, you know, you learn so much from teaching. I, I just have found it so enriching. I made one really wise decision when I started, which was that for the first year I wouldn't write a book. Yeah. Um, so, I, of course, the muse is strange. It's, it's like a lot of real life love affairs. You know, the more you say, I'm not going to be around, the more the muse wants you to be around. You know, Morrissey has a great song, the more you ignore me, the, the closer, closer I, I get. get. Yeah. So it's a bit like that. As soon as I made that decision, I started getting more and more ideas for books. So I'll, I'll come, come back to it at some point, uh, but uh, no plans at the moment. I do have to mention that the wonderful Moonfish Theatre from Galway are touring uh, 11 towns in Ireland this September and October with their stage version of Star of the Sea, um, which is bilingual. And this novel in which I think there are, you know, 44 main characters, somebody pointed out to me once, um, there are six or seven actors. So I went to see it in Galway last year when it was premiered at the Arts Festival. I confess with some trepidation. You had nothing um, to do with the actual adaptation? No, I wasn't. No, no, I, I just handed it over and, and they've put this together. And, and I, I, was, I was just 
um, blown away by it. So if you liked Star of the Sea or if you're interested in Irish language theatre uh, or bilingual uh, in, the, in this case, but the, uh, the Irish in it is really beautiful. I mean, if I had a slight concern in the back of my head when I was writing Star of the Sea, it was actually around the Irish language. And I think this is why I gave Moonfish the book, that I was always aware that this novel parts of which are set in Connemara in the 1840s, people would not be speaking English. And the closest I can get to it is the kind of um, sing-like version of that, but that that's not what they would have been actually saying. Mm -hmm. So to hear those words spoken in the Tyveark, in Galway, Mm -hmm. you know, I did find a very powerful experience. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. That kind of chimes to wrap up, but that kind of chimes with PJ Matthews' writing um, in the piece that we published today. This is uh, academic at UCD, and he was saying because of the way that you had written *Star of the Sea*, as though it was a contemporary novel from the 19th century, it almost um, fits into a, a missing tradition, if you like. There's so much catastrophe in Ireland in the 19th century. There was relatively little literature. Um, published yeah. and he was placing it almost in a tradition before translations by Brian Friel, another masterpiece, which um, is a pretty high compliment. Um, I've, I've uh, had this book be the subject of the Irish Times Book Club now for a month and it's a bit like um, being at your own funeral because all the people have been writing in to the Irish Times saying the most incredibly and unmeritedly complimentary Things. It's, every writer should have this happen to them. Occasionally, <laughs> switch on the, the email in the morning, and there's another message from Martin saying, you know, there's 1,500 words of praise for you from somebody. So it's been a lovely experience, and I want to thank Martin and the Irish Times for for, for doing this, and I wish it well, and I hope it really it really takes off um, because it, because it's it's been a lovely thing to be part of. So I'm I'm going to miss it now when it ends next week. Okay, listen, thanks very much, Joe. It's very kind of you to say so. Um, Thanks very much, Anna. And thank you all for coming this evening. And um, tune in next month for the next Irish Times Book Club podcast. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. Thank you.